0: Okay, Jesse, there was so much about last week's story that I did absolutely not see coming. What are we talking about this week?
1: A wild cast of glamorous characters and a toxic love triangle lead to a brutal homicide in 1970s Manhattan. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jessie. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about big personalities, bigger grudges, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love
0: Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder
1: Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder, a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. As always, you guys have outdone yourself. Thank you so, so much for the wonderful reviews this week. Yeah, we're on a real, real good streak, which you know what that means, Jess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the other shoe is going to drop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> also, if you're interested in supporting us in the show more directly and chatting with us and hanging out, head on over to patreon.com slash where you can learn all about the different tiers of support.
1: gets you ad-free and usually the night before. So ad-free and early episodes as well as a Patreon exclusive sticker and a shout out. Yay. Yay. And then our next, our $10 level gets you all of the bonus episodes, which we will be releasing extremely soon if we haven't already because I'm actually working on it right now. So we'll be able to tell you when that one's coming out very, very shortly. And speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled to shout out our newest patrons, Lee P and Anna L. Welcome, guys, and thank you so, so much. Speaking of Patreon, Andy, this episode today, I actually started writing as a Patreon bonus, and I was so carried away, just completely swept into the case, into the world that this Takes place in that I was like, I cannot deny the majority of our listeners this incredible true crime story. Okay. So I think, with that being said, I don't want to pump it up too much. So we should just get going. When you were thinking about that, did you actually think, I can't
0: keep this story from Andy?
1: (laughs) I I did. I did. But I mean, you always get to hear it. I was like, I cannot deny the the rest of our listeners. You are always the first listener. And I think that you are going to absolutely appreciate this one. Yay. August 6th, 1978 was a sweltering Sunday on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. The muggy morning didn't break, making many residents wish that they had gone out to the Hamptons or to Block Island to escape the concrete heat. Above the fray, 20-year-old, fresh-faced model Cheryl Corey was taking in the terrific cityscape views from the 17th-floor balcony of her boyfriend's apartment when tragedy struck. Far down below, a couple out walking heard the sickening sound of a building breaking, a tremulous crunch. And as they looked up in horror, they saw the balcony give way and two bodies free fall from the 17th floor. Oh my God, that's terrifying. It's one of my worst nightmares. Yeah. They landed on the roof of the Grand Way supermarket at First Avenue and 85th Street. The beautiful New Jersey native who held so much promise died upon impact and her boyfriend was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. A mere three or four blocks away, the building at 155 East 84th Street, home to the My Fair Lady Modeling Agency, was a Twitter with shock and disbelief. Cheryl had been a rising star with the agency, though there had been some rumors that she was growing discontent with the management, the management being the landlord of the building, and a famous thoroughbred horse trainer named Howard Buddy Jacobson, and his much, much younger cover model girlfriend, Melanie Kane. The building was filled with characters, models, actresses, flight attendants, all whom Buddy didn't even try to hide stepping out with, a smart, good hearted 34 year old restaurateur who had caught the attention of Melanie Kane and even a big-time cocaine dealer who plied his wares to the who's who of the fashion scene.
0: I'm sure he was making a killing in that building.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) this is, Melrose Place was California, I believe, but like this was a very fashionable, hot, young, famous set of people. When 23-year-old Melanie returned to 155 East 84th and was told the horrific news about Cheryl's untimely passing, she was shook. She could not Imagine anything worse than the bright and star powered 20 year old plummeting to her death. But soon, she wouldn't have to imagine something worse because it would happen. A frightening homicide of another of the building's residents would soon come to light only hours later when the charred legs of a man would be found sticking out of a burning crate in the Bronx. What? Same day. The victim had been stabbed so many times that his face was left mutilated. He had been shot seven times and then set on fire on a heap of garbage beside the freeway. Jeez. Very brutal. The crime was one of passion, hatred, and jealousy. And it showed the terrifying lengths one lover would go to to assert control. So this was, like I said, going to be a Patreon. I found it while I was reading R. Barry Flowers' book, Jealous Rage, Volume 1. Whoa, there's multiple volumes? (laughs) There's multiple volumes and there's multiple stories in these volumes. They're relatively shorter. I would say more like novella length or even shorter, short story-ish. So they're not like my full... Book that I usually read. And this actually was recommended to me about another case that I'll probably cover later that's also in this volume when I found this one and I found it It so very interesting. So that's the name of the volume that it's in. The particular short story is called The Murder of the Horse Trainer's Rival. And I also found a an extremely well-written and very informative New York Magazine article from the time that this crime happened, September 11th, 1978, called Love and Death on the Upper East Side by Anthony Hayden Guest. So, this is going to be a roller coaster. So, hang on and let's start with the head honcho landlord and horse trainer extraordinaire, Buddy Jacobson. Howard Buddy Jacobson was born on December 30th, 1930, in Brooklyn, New York, to a father who was an executive at a hat company and a mother who was basically horse racing royalty. Buddy's uncle, who was his mother's brother, Hearst Jacobs was one of the most famous horse trainers to ever exist in the United States. He was even inducted into the National Museum of Racing Hall of Fame in 1958. Buddy's cousin, I will not break down how and by which familial link, but Buddy's cousin Patrice and her husband Louis Wolfson owned and bred 1978 American Triple Crown Champion Affirmed. Now, the Triple Crown is a very big deal in horse racing. That means winning the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes, and it is tremendously hard to pull off. Yeah. To this date, only 13 horses have ever won the title of a Triple Crown champion, and the three races and the conception of the Triple Crown came out almost 150 years ago. It's like when you win a... Tony and Emmy and an Oscar. Yeah, but there's way more EGOTs than there are Triple Crown winners.
0: <laughs> there are. Yeah, I mean, you're relying on an animal that you can't really communicate with. So it's a exactly different.
1: Yeah. And that's why horse trainers end up really good ones, make so, so much money because they are horse whispers. So racing was definitely in this family's blood. And Buddy had quite the in, even though they did make him start when he was super young, mucking out stalls and doing all of the grunt work. Nobody in this family got a free pass just to the big time. In 1949, he dropped out of high school only, I think, a few months shy of his graduation to work on the backstretch, cooling sweaty horses after races and workouts. After a brief sojourn in the Merchant Marines, Buddy returned to the family fold and began his journey to become a nationally ranked thoroughbred horse trainer in earnest. And boy, was he good at it. In 1963, at the age of 32, Buddy was widely known as North America's best thoroughbred horse trainer. He was at the time, he was busy too. Listen to this. He was running three cattle ranches, a transportation company, mostly around transporting horses obviously an equipment firm a horse farm and he was also training 30 horses for about 11 owners how? I don't know where they find the time also these horse trainers get up at the crack of dawn they are training horses at like 4 or 5 in the morning So my family has a connection to horse racing, which I'll get into later. So I won't talk about it here now, but I know because they would like, there'd be people at my parents' house having dinner and drinking wine. And they're like, okay, I got to leave. It's 8 p.m. I'm getting up at four in the morning. Jesus. Yeah, it's just crazy. Totally different life. Totally different. By 1965, he had saddled nearly 200 winners and was dubbed the U.S.'s most successful trainer for the third year in a row. But he was only too happy to dole out his keys of success to the press. He said, you know by trial and error and you just make damn sure that you don't repeat a mistake. (laughs) Very simple. (laughs) Unlike many of his peers who simply had a great love for the sport and for horses, which seems like that would be a starting characteristic needed to become a horse trainer, Buddy genuinely looked at horse racing as a business. He was not in it to benevolently raise champions and treat horses well. He was quoted as saying about his winning formula at the Saratoga race course, you have to move fast, buy, sell, keep active. You've got to wheel and deal, stand still and you're dead. Oh. Yeah, he's aggressive. He's aggressive. So yes, yeah, the mention of Saratoga, My my parents had a farm outside of Saratoga and my dad's a dentist. I think I've mentioned that to you guys. And he actually ended up doing dental work for all of these horse trainers and jockeys and... Owners and he got kind of pulled into that world. So we actually owned racehorses for a little bit and saw them race in Saratoga at Belmont, which was really interesting. And it's such a wild world, which is why I was, again, probably so interested in this story. And coincidentally, this episode will air only a few days after the opening of the Saratoga racetrack.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's opening it for this season. A Did you plan that?
1: Not even a little bit. I started working on this episode last week and I was like, whoa, opening day is on Thursday and this is going to come out the Wednesday after. (laughs) So if you're in the Saratoga area, you should stop by the track. Not an ad. So if you've ever been to a horse race, you've likely seen the winner's circle and that is where Buddy spent a lot of time. Well, winning titles and being in the winner's circle... For the horse races. He was also in the winner's circle in life, in his personal life. He married a lovely woman named Joan on his rise up, and the couple had two sons named David and Douglas. And he was making a lot of money. His family was also, I think, pretty wealthy at this time as well. So they ended up having two farm slash estates that were beautiful. One was in Long Island, and the other one was in upstate New York. So He's living a good, pretty charmed life at this point. But as we know on this show, the charmed life only lasts for so long. There began to be rumors that Buddy cut corners, and he was not exactly the most ethical horse trainer. He reportedly ran horses really hard. He would run them on sore legs. Maybe they weren't feeling their best and his mind was always on the money and not on the majestic animals who make the sport possible. Yeah. Which is a problem. I mean a lot of animal rights organizations want to do away with horse racing altogether and it makes sense when there's trainers who do shit like this. This is unethical. This is maltreatment of animals. And I've I've seen it from the inside and there's certainly bad actors involved in it that would run horses when it's way too hot out. There's like a million things that you should not do. But then there's like the flip side of it, which thoroughbred horses love to run, you know? It's just like... Just like an Olympic sprinter, like that, if, you know, maybe they were able to be able to communicate a little bit more and say, I want to do this. I want to get out there and race. It'd be a different story. But yeah, unfortunately, there's just too many humans involved that can make the sport completely inhumane, which is like another reason why my dad ended up getting out of it altogether. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to participate in something, even if as a whole, it's not bad. So, yeah, he was like one of those guys that was really pushing it as far as ethical treatment of these animals. One of his owners said you would never even see him pat a horse. He always said that they were just the dumbest things alive. Oh,
0: my gosh, sir. This is how you're making all of your money to live. Yeah. And horses are amazing. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't like a horse is not, I would not say is a good person. Anyone who doesn't like animals in general, but, you know,
1: that's just my opinion, whatever. Yeah, I would say that there is a love murder red flag on the field here. I'd say there's a few. Yeah, so we got a red flag here that he mistreats horses. And he was also just kind of scummy. He was quick to do anything that would get him ahead. He was like one of the first people that would pump horses full of cortisone to keep them going. So maybe not a great guy. And there's, of course, there's like different reports. There's some people that say these reports came out after some other things came to light and people were just dumping on him. So it's a little he said, he said, but, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Despite being considered the golden boy of horse racing and the Brooklyn cowboy, which was what his name was, uh, <laughs> his nickname. <Yeah. laughs> Did he give that to himself? I do not know where it originated from, but he was a loner who didn't make friends and he barely even talked to his employees, which is why it was surprising when he was elected the president of the Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association, which is supposed to look after the interests of the backstretch employees who are the ones who are the grooms and the stable hands. And the people doing a lot of the work, which is also pretty dangerous, like when you're handling like revved up thoroughbred horses. And many times, I think still to this day, a lot of um, these workers are undocumented, underpaid, underappreciated. So it's good that there was an association that was there to support their interests. And so it seemed noble that he was the president of this organization, but people were kind of confused as Buddy didn't even seem to care that much about his own backstretch employees. More people suggested that it was kind of about flipping off the establishment. He had had some qualms with the National Racing Association. And by becoming the president of this other organization, he could... Agitate for pension funds. He ended up agitating a boycott. So all of the backstretch employees boycotted for full nine days, which cost them immeasurable amounts of money. So yeah, some people think that it was more like sticking it to the man. And the boycott ended up being ultimately unsuccessful. They said it would have been successful if he had just quit after three days because they were feeling the heat and they would have worked out a deal. But after like six, seven, eight days, I guess everybody just kind of quit and went back to work. They were like, uh, we're not going to do this anymore. And so he lost all of his bargaining power. So that failed. And then the racing association was still really angry with him for picking that fight and costing them a ton of money during the boycott. So they decided that they were going to do a full audit on Buddy's financial transactions as far as it goes from like buying and selling horses. And he ended up being found guilty of five offenses of misrepresenting sale or purchase prices and pocketing the difference. Yikes. Now, from what I read, it seemed like, especially during this time period in the 70s, a lot of people did this. A lot of people kind of wheeled and dealed, gave themselves a little off the top, put it in their pocket. So this was not unusual. It was more that he kind of like effed the man. And so the man effed him back. And they're like, we know you're doing it. Everybody's doing it. But we're coming for you.
0: Yep. Yep. I mean, that's kind of how all auditing is.
1: It is exactly. You screwed me. I'm going to screw you. Just stay under the radar and you can get away with some sketchy ass shit. It's just when you make a big deal that they're going to come after you. So that was going on. And he was kind of just like not getting along with people left and right. Apparently a bunch of the big track meets like Saratoga were denying him stable space. So every barn, which is like your, your trainer and your, the group of horses that are under that trainer has their own stable barn space at every meet. And they travel to all of these meets wherever the season is taking them. So if you don't have stable space, if you don't have barn space, you can't race. Yep. So he is being like cut out ruthlessly of this industry that only a couple years earlier, he was the golden boy of, and that he grew up with. And that he grew up with and he was part of this, like, basically royalty family. Yeah. And to make matters worse, his wife divorced him at this time, too. Yikes. She's yeah. Like, but it, it's, it did seem like that was on him as well. As far as the dissolution of that marriage, they did not say explicitly that it was because of infidelity, but it was hinted at very much because anyone who knew him said that he had a preoccupation with young, good-looking women. In a very strange way, too, in a like a more like Hugh Hefner way where it was almost about image more than even relationships or sexual status. (laughs) Yes, it was about status more than it was about anything, even sexual gratification. It was like having a young woman interested in him, having a young woman on his arm, having many young women on his arms made him feel like a much bigger man. Yeah, that's, but that's how he treats the horses too. They're disposable. It's just for status and money. That is a good point. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So he was feeling a little frustrated and betrayed by the horse racing industry at this point. Plus he had just essentially lost his family. He still had some partial custody of his two sons, but you know, the family home was broken at this point. And so Buddy decided to give it all up and focus on a new career in real estate.
0: Okay. I mean, I could see him doing well in that.
1: Yes, and he did well for a little while. One of his first acquisitions was a ski lodge near Mount Snow in Vermont that was named the Norway Lodge. And then he moved on to his native New York City, where he bought a building on the Upper East Side at 155 East 84th. Now, Buddy did do like, you know, he walked the walk, he talked the talk, like he renovated everything. He was a part of every project. He was not just some like rich guy that sat on the sidelines. He was a perfectionist, and they said that he ended up laying all of the floors for the entire building himself because no one could match them up exactly like he wanted. (laughs) When Buddy was satisfied with the remodel, he began to rent out the units to tenants, and he always made sure to leave some units available on discount for pretty faces. One of his early tenants was 17-year-old model Melanie Kane, she moved in with two other young models from her agency, and the girls had been attracted to the building's wrought iron balconies, electronic security system, pool, and sun deck.
0: Sounds really nice for New York.
1: Yeah. So they had to move into a ground floor at the beginning, but Melanie moved up pretty quickly. She got more than those amenities when she moved in. She also got herself an eccentric and commanding boyfriend in her landlord. So let's talk about Melanie. First of all, Melanie Kane is an incredible name. It's like a Bond girl. I know one. You know a Melanie Kane? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Is she a fashion designer? She's uh, the
0: sister of a fashion designer. They had a brand that I sold.
1: Yeah. So yeah, Melanie Kane is just, I was imagining uh, like an intrepid investigative journalist in a superhero movie. Maybe it's just because it sounds like Lois Lane, Melanie Kane. So yeah, Melanie, or Melon, as Buddy called her, was born in Norfolk, Virginia, but she moved around quite a bit. She was raised kind of all over the United States. Her family was this stuff of like a 1950s conservative, leave it to beaver type TV show. They were Irish Catholic, and Melanie was one of six total siblings. Wow. Yeah. So there were four girls and two boys. Her father was a salesman and her mother was a Republican activist. So Melanie grew up in Washington, D.C., New Jersey, Texas, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. And then she ended up going to high school in Naperville, Illinois, where she was active in theater. She would later say that though she gravitated towards the spotlight, modeling had never been a passion, but simply a way to pay the bills. It ended up being a very, very good way to pay the bills for her when she was signed by Eileen Ford in July of 1973. Whoa. Yeah. The Ford agency was a big deal. Eileen's husband, Jerry, said she was a very pleasant kid, but naive. She had a bit of a weight problem. Good mouth, good teeth. Okay, sir. All right, sir. But this goes back to what you were saying, I think not just about Buddy, but about the greater world, treating women like horses, like livestock. Like think about what he just said, a bit of a weight problem, good teeth, good mouth, good strong teeth, good strong teeth. He might've been as well talking about a horse. And I was thinking about that too, because some of these words we have for women, like especially models, for some reason, she's cultish. She's a thoroughbred. They say that a modeling agency has a stable of beauties. Yeah. It's mind blowing that these are so intertwined and it's kind of not surprising that Buddy was attracted to models. I mean, I guess it's not surprising when anyone's attracted to a model. (laughs) Can you believe it? He had
0: close ties with horses and models and probably treated both of them like shit.
1: Exactly. (laughs) mundo. Yes. Well, despite that less than glowing assessment by Mr. Ford, Melanie landed a 17 magazine cover story pretty much right away that announced that everything about Melanie is refreshing. She's the image of everything wholesome, like Kellogg's cornflakes. Melanie could not get a break. I personally would not (sighs) want to be described as a food that was devised to discourage masturbation. I was going to say, I guess it's better than like rice puffs
0: or like Fruit Loops or like she's a classic uh, American
1: beauty, like Count Chocula. She's an old Lucky Charm. <laughs> Actually, I would like to be compared to Lucky Charms. Like think about it. They're a delicious. Yeah. You always get a surprise. You never know what you're going to get. I mean, you do know what you're going to get. <laughs> you're going to um, get a wheat
0: puff or a marshmallow or a manufactured marshmallow that is stale. But get soft in the milk.
1: (laughs) Look, I didn't get a lot of candy as a child, being the daughter of a dentist. I was allowed one sugar cereal per year on my birthday, and I got lucky charms. Really? Yeah. Although when I went to other children's homes, the parents were probably concerned for me because I would be like, can I have another bowl of (laughs) Berry Berry Kicks? You got any Captain Crunch? Bring it on over. They're like, wow, that child ate 12 bowls of cereal. Wow. This took a real left turn. So let's go back to Melanie. She was very, very pretty. She was wholesome as described, very girl next door, kind of like milkmaidy looking, like that clear skin, round face. She almost immediately also landed covers for magazines like Cosmopolitan and Red Book. So she was doing great. Her model card boasted that Melanie was five foot and eight and a half inches with 34-24-34 measurements, golden brown hair, blue eyes, and that special something else. That's what it said on the card. Due to her modeling success, Melanie was able to move on out of the shared ground floor apartment and on up to the seventh floor, which is where Buddy had a penthouse. So, of course, she found herself engaging with her landlord a little more now that they're on the same floor. They also ended up going to the same hot spots in the city. They just kept running into each other. And Buddy was absolutely taken with young, beautiful Melanie. One article said that with Melanie on his arm, Buddy chased his lost youth and reputation. But Melanie was equally enamored. She soon dumped her male model boyfriend and moved into the penthouse with Buddy. So she had turned 18 by the time they started dating in earnest. But there was, yeah, there's still a huge, huge age gap and developmental issue here as well, though Melanie seemed pretty mature and Buddy seemed pretty immature, it's still grody. And what's even grodier is that he lied to her about it. She believed that he was 29 years old when he was, in fact, 43. What? How do you lie about that? Yeah. So they're 25 years apart. He made it sound like 11. It's like, I guess I could see it. I could kind of see it. He looks like I'm trying to find the like words for it. He looks kind of like one of those 90s Brit like rockers who are really like thin and kind of like shaggy. And they like, even in their 20s, they look like they lived a hard life, but they're like slender and cool looking. He had like kind of a vibe like that. Like this like wiry, like kind of like strung out, like cool guy-ish look. So I could see how you could be like, wow, he's like just partied too much for 29. Or you'd be like, he looks good for 43. (laughs) Yeah. So I know I like a lot of these. I'm like, how did they believe that this one? I could kind of see. However, it gets even grosser because he didn't just lie about his age. He also introduced his teenage sons to her as his younger brothers.
0: Yeah. So he's just like a liar.
1: (laughs) He is just a creepy liar. So what she thought she was attracted to him, she would later say that she thought he looked like Charlie Chaplin. She said he had a lean face, a bushy mustache and unruly dark hair. But she said it was even more than his looks that she was attracted to. He had this electric energy and she said his presence was hypnotic. So they became somewhat of a celebrity couple in their little corner of Manhattan. They used to go to this restaurant that was in the neighborhood, and they always got the best table, even if there was a weight. And apparently the owner of the restaurant hung Melanie's Cosmopolitan cover next to Buddy's picture of him winning the Belmont Steaks. So they're like, this is our celebrity couple. This is their special table. So she is liking this. I mean, she's at the top of her game. She has this like semi-famous boyfriend and he owns the whole building she lives in and they live in the penthouse. So she feels like everything's going great. However, in July of 1974, a false rumor circulated that Melanie was planning on starting her own rival modeling agency and that she was luring a talent away from the Ford agency Obviously, Eileen was not having that. And even though Melanie denied the rumors, Eileen fired her. So Melanie thought, screw it. If I'm going to be accused of it, I might as well do it. And with Buddy's financial support and backing and giving her retail space in the building, she was able to start an agency as 50-50 partners with Buddy. They called it My Fair Lady after Melanie's favorite movie. Why not go with Kane Agency?
0: Like your last name is Kane, the Kane Agency would have been so much better,
1: my fair lady. Oh, isn't that what people name their horses as well? I mean, yes, probably. I just do not see that as a good, like, cosmopolitan. Oh, I'm signed to my fair lady. Yeah, it sounds like you're just gonna do like ads for like Doilies gloves and like nice smelling spring fresh douches
0: or something. I don't know if douches would fall under the My Fair Lady category, but...
1: (laughs) So the agency was a middling success, probably due to the name. But he was smart enough to try to lure fresh-faced talent from undercapitalized areas of the country. So he would advertise in, like, Minneapolis and other places where modeling scouts didn't always go and pay a lot of attention to And then if any of the pictures were promising, then he would send them plane tickets to have them come audition in New York City. Okay. They did pick up quite a few models this way. A editor for Seventeen Magazine said that they had like a good roster of kind of offbeat girls. They were not classic New York City runway models. They were oftentimes extremely pretty, but like a little short, which is I think kind of like what you're going to get when you're kind of like sending out advertisements rather than truly scouting. And even then, even with this like pretty good roster of talent, Melanie was still the number one breadwinner, top moneymaker, the reason that the agency could keep going on. They said that in 1978, she made about $100,000 a year, which is the equivalent of $450,000 in today's money. So, yeah, at this point, again, you would think that they're doing well together. They're running a business together. They're happy. They're living in a great place in the city. But, of course, Buddy had to screw it up again. He could not stay faithful. Even though he's with this 25 years younger model who was apparently smart, his business partner, he's telling her she's the love of his life. He even reportedly gave her an engagement ring, but any plans to get married were permanently placed on hold due to his inability to keep it in his pants. So Melanie uncovered lie after lie. She discovered the thing about his brothers being his sons. I think that's a pretty big one. Yeah, it's so weird. And then there was infidelity after infidelity. So she ended up packing her bags and leaving no less than six times. But there was just something about Buddy or maybe it's just because she didn't know where else to go, but she kept coming back. There was one occasion that she told a friend about where she literally caught him in their apartment with another girl And she was so pissed. She stormed out and she went and did something else for a few hours. Then she was like, okay, I guess I'll go back. And she went back up. And when she came back, he was cooking and he turned to her and he goes, oh, guess what? I've decided to forgive you. Come here. Like so cocky. He had this like brazen confidence, which probably worked for him in business like situations, but is not great in personal relationships. It also probably didn't help matters that Buddy was very much trying to flip big buildings in New York at this point too. So maybe his energy was not on My Fair Lady. So his energy is not on Melanie personally. And it also feels like it's not on Melanie professionally. He had just bought the Park East, which was a former hospital on 83rd. And he planned to turn it into a $3 million co-op, which I don't even know what $3 million is because that's 1978 money. Yeah. So it would have been in an incredible opportunity. So he was working on that. He ran all of his crews completely by himself. Like he was his own like head contractor when he's doing these incredibly large real estate deals. And his crew primarily came from Southern Italy. So he had a whole bunch of mostly undocumented Southern Italian workers who were fanatically loyal to him. Melanie was hoping to branch out as well. So she had been taking dance classes for a couple years, and she was also interested in maybe doing some acting. She wanted to do different performance-related careers that had a little bit more to do with her talents and not as much to do with her looks, although that was always going to be part of it. But Buddy was not supportive in this even a little bit. He even told her that he didn't know why she would even bother going out to audition because he's like, what? So you can compete with girls who have been taking dance and acting lessons since they were five years old when you just started two years ago. He's like, don't waste your time. Rude. Very rude. So she's like feeling very trapped at this point. She's 23 years old. She's been with this guy since she was underage, basically. I think they technically got together when she was 18, but like barely so she's trapped with this guy she's been with for way too long, who's much older, and she's found out all these lies about him. She's trapped in a career that she's not passionate about, even though it pays her well, which can also be a trap. When you make a lot of money doing something you hate, you have to keep doing it because you want to make that money. And then she's also, like, living in this building. He owns the whole building. Where is she going to go? So a glimmer of hope returned to Melanie's life when 34-year-old restaurateur Jack Tupper moved into the building and into the very same seventh-floor penthouse apartment. There was two penthouses, though Buddy's was the bigger one, that she had once lived in. Now, Melanie and Jack met when one of them was leaving their apartment to go running. And they realized that they both had a common interest in the new wild fad of yogging. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is before we were born, but in the 1970s, apparently jogging swept the nation as the brand new thing to do. So funny. Your little jogging outfits. <laughs> totally. You had a jogging outfit. Even like, um. so R. Barry Flowers wrote in the 70s as well. And like, there's one part of the story that I was reading about where he said, and she couldn't even find his jogging shoes. And <laughs> I don't know why that cracked me up. Jogging shoes. The reason why Melanie found herself attracted to Jack was that he was almost the polar opposite of Buddy. While Buddy was a wiry 5'9", Jack was a well-built 190 pounds and over six feet tall. While Buddy was dark and eccentric, Jack was sandy-haired, warm, and gregarious. Buddy famously had no friends except for Melanie, and Jack was a popular man's man with a whole gang of close friends from childhood and beyond. Buddy had dropped out of high school, and he did display an incredible amount of street smarts while Jack had achieved a master's degree in business from St. John's University. Wow. Yeah, so they could not be... Further apart. And most importantly, Jack actually seemed like a really, really, really good guy. He was described by a friend as a moral person who always did the right thing. This definitely feels like the type of guy that Melanie should be with. Yes. So by the time Jack moved into the building, he had already had success in his hometown of Queens, where he had operated a popular restaurant bar called the Sherwood Inn. He had opened another bar called All Ireland on Third Street, but he had sold his share in that bar following his divorce, which left him the non-custodial parent of a 10-year-old son whom he adored. Which wasn't anything about his parenting, why he didn't have like anything other than part-time custody. It's just the way it was in the 70s. Yeah. So Jack had moved to the Upper East Side building while scouting locations on the East Side to open up a new bar or restaurant. Instead, he had met the stunning 23-year-old cover girl model girlfriend of his famous landlord. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) He started (laughs) innocently enough with the two going for platonic jogs together, but it did not take Melanie Long on one of their early runs to admit that she had a crush on the kind-hearted single father. Let's be honest, sex is better when everyone is enjoying themselves. That's why Dame Products designed Eva, the first hands-free vibrator for couples. Boost pleasure and connection for all with a little toy that won't get in the way. Use the exclusive code LOVEMURDER today for 15% off
0: site-wide. Sharing pleasure during intimacy not only feels good in your body, but it can increase your emotional connection and decrease your stress levels. So you can take those good feelings with you throughout your day. But in order to get there, even the most sexually motivated couples can benefit from strategically placed buzz. Enter Dame Products.
1: Dame Products designed its hands-free toy, Eva, specifically for couples. It nestles close to the body and stays put with just a finger so you and your partner can focus on intimacy. Designed to enhance, not distract from pleasure, Eva is your sex life's new best friend. So what are you waiting for? Try adding a toy into the mix and discover new layers of pleasure you can share, plus sex you'll really look forward to. Jesse, you know I was so
0: excited when my Dame order arrived. I got the Eva for couples, but also their air and the
1: oil. Yes, and actually, I found out about Dame through you a couple years ago. We have been huge cheerleaders for this company and these products forever. So it's so exciting that we actually get to share it with you guys at Love Murder here. Yeah,
0: Dame was at the forefront of promoting and marketing towards female pleasure.
1: Yeah, get it, Dame. That's why we're so excited to represent this company. And just to have these toys for our pleasure, for our partner's enjoyment, and for us as
0: individuals as well. Power up your pleasure with any of the toys from Dame Products. Go to dameproducts.com slash lovemurder today for 15% off site-wide. That's code lovemurder to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com.
1: Jack responded very positively to this. And the couple had a whirlwind courtship. They snuck around for about a week. They had like dinners together. Jack's brother-in-law was an FBI agent. So they had dinner with the FBI agent and Jack's sister. They were kind of like out to their friends before Buddy knew. And after they did a hotel overnight so they could spend the night together, that's when Buddy started putting the pieces together when Melanie didn't come home. And when she came back the next day, she said, this is over. It's been over for a million years. You have cheated on me left and right. I've caught you. I've left six times. Like, but this time it's for real. And Buddy, you got to admit that it behooves me to leave. Like, don't be a shit about this. So Buddy was angry, even though he really didn't have a leg to stand on. But he was really pissed because also it cast My Fair Lady in jeopardy too. Because even though he wasn't focused on My Fair Lady, it still brought a pretty good revenue stream to him. So he's like, Well, what's going to happen with the agency? How can you just leave me? And she was moving across the hall. She literally got her things and moved across the hall and in with Jack. So he's like, And really, you're just going to move across the hall to my tenant's place? So yeah, Buddy was not taking this well. And this ended up creating an incredibly toxic love triangle overnight. I mean, they're on the same floor. Melanie fell headlong into a passionate relationship with Jack, with the brand new couple even discussing marriage within only days of consummating their relationship. (laughs) So there definitely was a natural chemistry and affinity for one another, but friends and family of Jack also said that Buddy's obsessive control over Melanie made him perhaps feel stronger about her than he naturally would because he was such a good guy who had such protective instincts. His family said that the relationship progressed so quickly only because Jack felt complimented by Melanie's affections. I mean, she's a cosmopolitan cover girl. And he wanted to help her out of the brutal relationship with Buddy Jacobson. Melanie reported that Jack proposed to her very early on in their courtship. She later said, I don't know why I said yes. Maybe I just thought that he was better than Buddy and I wanted stability, but I was in shock. So this is a big move for her, and it seems like it's happening very, very quickly. And at the same time that she's trying to build this new relationship, Buddy became fixated on winning her back. At first, he tried playing nice. He wrote Melanie a cable on July 29th, 1978 that read, Dear Melon, sorry for the past week and for the abuse I must have put you through for the past five years. You always hurt the one you love. Jack is a good guy and he will love you and be honest with you. You're right. I would have always been a bum. Hey. Yeah. And so Melly's like, all right, maybe we don't even have to like move out. Maybe this could be amicable and maybe Buddy and I can run the modeling agency together without completely imploding everything. However, when those overtures and mature apologies did not deliver her back to his bedroom and into his life as his girlfriend, he then got irate. So all maturity out the window. And he began to incessantly call Jack's apartment over and over again, trying to get Melanie on the line. He could see there in their apartment from his terrace and he would be like out on his terrace, like trying to watch what they were doing. It was not a good scene. And then when... Jack needs to move. Obviously, they need to get a new apartment. Yeah. And so when, obviously, the intimidation wasn't working, the stalking's not working, being nice didn't work, then he turned to the pure businessman mode. And on a recorded phone call, because at this point, Jack was recording all of the calls wisely, he offered Jack $100,000 to leave his quote, wife alone and leave the city. And you can take that hundred grand. You can open up a restaurant anywhere you want. Just get the hell out of Manhattan. It's Manhattan. Yeah, that's where he wants to open restaurants. So that's like, again, that's pushing like half mil. So that's a lot for a girlfriend, but definitely Jack was not taking it. He laughed right in his face. He's like, that's ridiculous. And also you can't put a price on a woman or her love. I'm not going to like sell her back to you. This is not how it works, dude. She's not a horse. She's not a horse. In fact, even talking about like the horse selling and trading in the same conversation, Buddy was like, also, I have all of these models and beautiful women I know, and you can take any of them. Oh, my God. Wow. Uh. No awareness Uh. at all that women are not do well
0: in 2020. (laughs)
1: No, he would not. He would not fare well in modern (laughs) times. So what happened was at this point, Jack was telling his friends about this crazy offer and how this guy was insane. And he even kind of liked it a little bit. Like he started calling Melanie his like hundred grand girl. Like, I guess she's she's worth a hundred grand, guys. My new girlfriend. It's crazy. So when all of that failed, Buddy turned to aggression, even shooting a thirty-two caliber bullet into Jack's door. Yeah, no. Yeah. So Melanie began to look for a new apartment for the couple, and there was only a period that was probably about like two or three weeks where it was really this bad. And during that time, she's looking for another place. They're both still working. She shot a Clairol commercial at this point. And Jack ended up finding a couple locations that he was narrowing it down to where he was going to open his new joint. But best of all, at the end of that two to three week period, Melanie finally found a place for them to live. After a weekend spent socializing with friends and a day trip to Long Island, Melanie got up early on Sunday, August 6th, to go sign the lease on their new apartment and left Jack sleeping in bed. When she arrived home after running some other errands around 1 p.m., she discovered that client and friend Cheryl Corey had died after falling 17 stories to her death. This was a sucker punch to Melanie's gut after... Having gone through so much and then finally had this ray of sunshine and hope in signing the lease, that she comes back and she gets that terrible news. When she entered Jack's seventh floor apartment, she was surprised to not find him home. As the day progressed, she began to notice some concerning things left behind in the apartment. Jack took his address book, which is kind of like a planner slash address book, and this fancy gold cross pen everywhere he went. It was like his phone in today's parlance. And they were at home. Also, the boots he wore, the shoes he wore regularly, including his running shoes, were all accounted for. So she didn't know where he would have gone without his shoes. So she starts calling all of his friends to find out if he's with any of them, if they know where he's been. And no one knows where Jack is. So in desperation, she went to the other penthouse apartment, the one that she had shared with Buddy for five years. And when she opened the door, she found the place in total shambles. According to the New York Magazine article, there was disorder everywhere with shattered fragments of mirror. There were cushions lying all over the floor And a rug that she had purchased actually for the couple, so she knew where it was and what it looked like, had disappeared. So she's like, something is very strange here. There was also Italian construction workers kind of milling about, like they were cleaning the place up. And when Buddy saw her, he screamed at her, get out, get out, I don't want to see you. She also noticed that the service elevator was taped over and shut down. So Melanie did finally manage to reach one of Jack's friends who came over to investigate with her. They discovered a spot of blood and some hair on the runner by the service doors. And it also appeared that somebody had mopped the tile floor that was under the runner and next to the service elevator as well. At that point, she was getting really, really nervous. And they did wait a couple hours more hours to see if he was going to come home and they didn't want to cause a big fuss for nothing but at 8 p.m. she and Jack's friend called the police to report him missing and told the officers that they suspected foul play. Melanie was woefully unaware at the time though that at the time of her call that the authorities already knew exactly where Jack was. His burning corpse had been discovered at 4 p.m. that day 11 miles away in the North Bronx. A good Samaritan had visited the Ash Loop fire station to report a fire only a few blocks away. He said he had witnessed two men dragging a six-foot-long crate out of a flashy 1974 yellow Cadillac and then set it on fire.
0: That's not the most discreet, guys.
1: It's not discreet at all. And 4 p.m. on a Sunday? Broad daylight when everybody's home from work? Everyone's out
0: doing things. Yeah. Like, come on.
1: Yeah. So I guess after these two guys made sure that the crate was burning, they then hightailed it back into the car and sped away. (laughs) Luckily, the witness was able to jot down the license plate. Thanks to sunshine. So much sunshine and the bright yellow of the car made it a can't miss. Later, some residents in a nearby high-rise building were able to back up the witness's account and even provide descriptions of the two men because, like, looking from above, they had an even better vantage point. The firefighters rushed to the scene only a few hundred feet from the firehouse. Again, also, you're a few hundred feet from a firehouse and you don't realize that? where black oily smoke was rising up from a large crate lying on top of a pile of garbage next to the New England freeway. Their worst fears were confirmed when they spied a charred set of human legs coming out of the burning box. Not good. The man in the box would be positively identified as Jack Tupper. He had been brutally beat and stabbed so many times that it was impossible to know how many times. And even though his face was burned, they could tell that the killer had stabbed him in the face over and over again to mutilate it. Psychotic. Now, this is the 70s, and also the corpse was badly burned, so they couldn't tell exactly, like, which cuts were post-mortem or not. So... It could have been that he was already dead seeing as he was also shot 7 times and what? that yeah, also shot 7 times. So this was some serious overkill and I am hoping that he shot him first and then it was just anger stabs, but given the scene that Melanie walked into and in, buddy's apartment, it seemed like there had been a struggle. So who knows? So the police were notified immediately and an APB went out with the Cadillac's license plate number. Very luckily for the authorities, one patrol officer happened to be sitting in gridlock traffic on the Triborough Bridge turnpike. And as the license plate number and description of the vehicle came through the radio, he looked up and the Cadillac was directly in front of him in traffic. That is Unbelievable. Unbelievable. No manhunt necessary. He's right there. That's
0: like literally the karma fairy already like. Already. Mm -hmm. Yep. The
1: karma fairy was on duty. She did not take Sunday off. She's full force on Sunday for sure. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, the owner and the driver of the car was, of course, Buddy Jacobson and the passenger, his accomplice, was a 23-year-old Italian construction worker named Salvatore Prianito. The two men were arrested without incident. Melanie would not find out until the next morning that one of her lovers was brutally murdered and the other had been arrested for the crime. Wow. Yeah. So Bail was initially denied for the two men and Buddy very loudly protested his innocence. He tried to say that Jack had been involved with drugs, with the mafia, with anything other than just a run-of-the-mill love triangle. There were rumors swirling all about the building, about all sorts of scandals. First of all, the drug dealer who lived at the building disappeared on the very same day that these murders... Yeah took place. Peace. Yeah, he's like, there's going to be police (laughs) crawling all over this place. I'm out. (laughs) So there was, like, rumors about, like, maybe there was some involvement with the drug dealer. There was rumors about the mafia. There were rumors that My Fair Lady was actually just a front for a call girl organization. Which, I mean, that's the only one that I think My Fair Lady would be a good name for.
0: It's his fault that he named it that,
1: so... So yeah, adding fuel to the fire, a small group of FBI agents cleared out Jack Tupper's apartment only two days after the murder. When journalist Anthony Hayden Guest inquired with the FBI, they reluctantly told him that because Jack's brother-in-law was in the FBI, they were simply getting possession of Jack's belongings and cleaning the apartment as a personal and private favor in a family matter which totally makes sense, but is also kind of sketchy still. But even if you want to go down that conspiracy theory route, there was just so much evidence against Buddy that you really can't walk down that line very far. Not only were witnesses able to identify him directly from a lineup as one of the men dumping the body, the Cadillac was, of course, registered to him. He was found in it with all of the Paraphernalia you need to set a crate on fire. And the bullets found in Jack's body matched the bullet that had been shot into his door only a couple weeks earlier. He wasn't very smart. This was a, the dumbest murder I've ever heard. And I mean, I guess it had to be a true crime of passion. It must have been some altercation happened between these men and there was a struggle and then a murder. And then he's like, holy shit, what am I going to do? Because this was not planned out.
0: No. For someone who's been so good at maximizing all of his businesses and his life and all of his investments, this was definitely
1: an actual crime of passion. 100%. On Thursday, August 10th, 1978, Jack Tupper was laid to rest. Jack's family banned Melanie from attending the funeral. Oh, no. Melanie said later, they blame me for what happened to Jack. They blame me for not being there with him. Jack was over six feet tall, and Buddy was only five foot nine. If anyone was going to kill anyone, you'd think it would have been the other way around. But Jack's family was furious, and they blamed me for the murder. Oh, that's really sad. I think it's really sad, but I can also understand Jack's family. They were dating for less than a month. Like, you're dating this girl for less than a month, and this guy, her ex-boyfriend kills you. And this is not Melanie's fault in any way. But I think that they definitely thought she could have warned him about Buddy's like temper or his violence or, you know, they could have gotten out of the building sooner. But, you know, really, you don't know that. You think, like, by the time everything went down, there was only two to three weeks of conflict before they got a new lease. So you'd think that everybody could hold it together for two to three weeks. He's now, at this point, 48 years old. Age really ain't nothing but a number when it comes to maturity. Yes. Melanie affirmed the belief that her ex-boyfriend, Buddy, was the murderer, even saying chillingly—now, this one sent chills up my spine— that she and Jack had been irritated by Buddy's constant hammering on the roof the night before the murders— the hammering had actually been Buddy constructing the box that Jack was discovered in.
0: Whoa. So it was premeditated.
1: It was then because he had the box ready to go. Like what else would he have been hammering and constructing on the roof? Yeah. Melanie said that they both were like kind of annoyed and they listened to him hammer for most of the evening. Melanie's Clairol campaign was canceled and she retreated into seclusion to regroup. Oh. Yeah. She bounces back, but it was not a good time for Melanie. She was famous for all the wrong things. Eventually, another agency capitalizes on her picture being everywhere. But for now, this was not the look that people wanted their company to have. They didn't want a cover girl be the face of Clairol when you're involved in a murderous love triangle. Buddy was indicted on murder charges on September 1st, 1978. Despite repeated warnings not to talk to the press by his attorneys, Buddy told several reporters that Jack Tupper was a mysterious businessman with questionable connections to organized crime. He said that the prosecutors were trying to cover up evidence that would make the state look bad and they were setting him up. He was being 100 percent railroaded. But yeah, there was absolutely no mafia connection that investigators or journalists could find. The state countered that it was blatantly clear that Buddy was the killer, his motivations being jealousy and the loss of income from his My Fair Lady partnership being dissolved. So Buddy did eventually get bail. He was denied it several times. But on October 6, 1978, he was let out on a 100 grand bond. He moved back into the penthouse at East 84th and initially tried very hard to convince Melanie that he was innocent, that he had nothing to do with this, and that he still loved her and wanted to be with her. But Melanie was rightfully terrified of him. She was no longer living at the apartment. She was in her new place. But she was really scared that he got out on bail, which makes perfect sense now that she knows what he's capable of. And she had actually already gotten a new boyfriend who was living with her at this point, Which is very fast moving from having a live-in lover for five years, then basically a fiancé of only a matter of weeks, and then two months later having a new live-in boyfriend. But I do think it was a security thing on her end. I think that it was like she wanted someone with her because she also got two police-trained German shepherds as pets and started carrying a firearm and even hired a like security detail, a private security detail because she was so convinced that Buddy was gonna come for her. Meanwhile, Buddy eventually just kind of moved on. They both did. What Buddy did was he ended up selling the building. He moved into another townhouse. He met a 22-year-old model How is he out? He's out on bail. I mean, he's going to have a trial, but this is what happens when you go out on bail. You get to just kind of walk around and be a civilian until your trial because it's innocent until proven guilty. So, yeah, he picked up a 22-year-old model slash student named Audrey Barrett. They started living together in the 15 months or so that he was free before his trial. He bought and sold a lot of buildings. He liquidated a ton of assets. So he was sitting on a pile of cash. You know, he told everyone that this was to pay his legal bills, of course. So he is up to business as usual. And Melanie did pretty much like a year after the whole scandal. She did manage to revive her career somewhat. She was signed by top modeling agency, Wilhelmina whose CEO Wilhelmina Cooper told Vogue that Melanie was in high demand due to her lean limbs, full lips, and long honey-colored hair. And then Wilhelmina went on to say that she was making even more than the $600 day rate that she had commanded at My Fair Lady, which is just a little under $3,000 a day. Wow, that's good money if you can get it. When the trial got going in early 1980, the prosecution laid out the evidence and the love triangle motive, while the defense theorized that Jack had been murdered because of his involvement in a major narcotics ring. Drug dealer Joseph Margiante had lived in the building at the same time as Jack and had mysteriously vanished on the same day of the murder. He was later found and convicted of trying to move like 30 pounds of hashish. So he was not killed. He was not actually involved. He just was trying to get the hell out of Dodge before the authorities were all over the building. But anyway, going back to their theory, their theory is that because he also disappeared on the same day, they believed that Joseph had killed Jack in a cocaine deal gone wrong And that Melanie had helped Joseph cover up the murder by planting Jack's body in Buddy's apartment. Oh my God. Forced Buddy to dispose of the remains himself, even though he had nothing to do with the murder.
0: Yeah. That sounds very accurately like something that could ever happen.
1: Well, this defense attorney must be looking for a high shelf because he's reaching. On April 12th, 1980, after 11 weeks of trial that included 79 witnesses and accusations that Buddy was issuing death threats towards witnesses and witnesses that did not appear, after all of that, the defendant, Buddy Jacobson, was convicted of second-degree murder of Jack Tupper. And I do think it was second-degree because people believed that it was not premeditated. But you made a good point about the crate. If he was making it the night before, then... Did they not bring that up in trial? I don't know for sure because I did not get a transcript of the trial. So yeah, I am just wondering what they thought he was going to be using a six-foot crate for. In any case, he was convicted of second-degree murder. Only three days earlier, Salvatore had been acquitted, actually. His defense attorney strategy was pretty smart, and I I could totally see why he was acquitted. They said, basically, he's an Italian immigrant who doesn't speak very good English, and this is his boss. They work in construction. If his boss was like, hey, we got to dump these materials somewhere, you'd go, okay. Yeah, but then you have to light
0: it on fire and leave it on the side of the road, and then there's feet hanging out at the bottom of it.
1: I mean, yes, but they could say that he was already, like, in too far before he realized it was a body. Yeah. Of course. So he yeah. was acquitted, and Good. he ended up going back to Italy and was later arrested for possession of a very large amount of heroin.
0: Okay. So maybe he's not the best apple.
1: <laughs> I actually think he had something to do with it because... I don't know if Buddy could have done all of that damage to Jack by himself. I think maybe it was premeditated. Maybe he and Salvatore laid in wait and attacked him because it didn't seem like Buddy was in any damage. Like he didn't have any black eyes, contusions, anything. And then, of course, there was all the people cleaning up his apartment. So it seems like somebody would have known something. In any case, Salvatore got off scot-free until he was caught with heroin in Italy later. A devastated Buddy Jacobson was put back into prison while awaiting his June 3rd, 1980 sentencing date. And he was on the hook for potentially 25 years to life. That's the maximum punishment for second degree murder in New York State, or at least it was in the 70s. But Buddy Jacobson was not going to go down like that. On Saturday, May 31st, 1980, 46-year-old Anthony DeRosa, who we're gonna call Tony Two Suits, came to visit Buddy in jail under the guise of being Buddy's attorney. In reality, Tony was a former bartender who had purchased the ski lodge from Buddy and then had fallen upon hard times he owed buddy 300 grand from the sale of the ski lodge which buddy said he'd forget all about if he did him one small little favor so tony went into the cell it was private because they believed he was his attorney and then after an interval of time buddy walked out calmly wearing a brand new gray tweed suit and having shaved his trademark mustache. At that point, Buddy just signed out of the jail as a fictitious attorney named Michael Schwartz. And then he went on his very merry and free way. Well, Tony Two Suits was left behind. And if you're wondering why I'm calling him Tony Two Suits, it's because he wore two suits into the cell and gave one to Buddy.
0: Thank you for elaborating on that.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure you all would have gotten it anyway, but <laughs> yes. yeah, that was the escape plan. And shockingly, it worked. It worked for everyone except for Tony Two Suits, who was immediately apprehended and charged with criminal facilitation, hindering prosecution, criminal impersonation, Burglary in the third degree. I don't know what that one was for, but he was charged with it. Criminal possession. So Buddy is on the lam with his 22-year-old model girlfriend, Audrey, and he's like 50 at this point, point. and they think that he had up to $1 million in cash assets at this point because of all the moving around of money and the liquidation that he was doing in the previous 15 months. So Buddy was sentenced to 25 years to life with an extra seven years for the jailbreak in absentia and an international manhunt began. So the first break in the search came almost a month later on Sunday, June 29th, 1980, when Audrey Barrett broke away from her fugitive lover and ended up surrendering herself to a police station in Thousand Oaks, California. Whoa. Yeah, they got far. Audrey described herself as a Bible-reading student and only part-time model who had given up the ghost after weeks of stress and suboptimal living conditions. She said that they were kind of like supposed to be on this grand adventure together. And instead, Buddy wouldn't even go into motels because he was worried about nosy motel clerks. So they just ended up sleeping every night in the car. And she was not about that life. So she ended up surrendering herself and she was arrested for first degree escape and criminal facilitation and held on a $350,000 bond, but eventually released after cooperating with the authorities on the quest to apprehend Buddy. Buddy's number did eventually come up 40 days after his escape. He was captured in Manhattan Beach, which is kind of like a cute little coastal city just south of L.A. Alex, my brother-in-law, used to live there. The police apprehended an unarmed buddy. He was talking on a payphone outside of a family restaurant about two miles from the beach. And I believe that he had been talking to his son on the payphone when he was arrested. This guy has balls for days because while they're arresting him, they were like, state your name. And he said 100% Howard Buddy Jacobson. And then he goes, but why are you arresting me? That's amazing. The guy was like, you are a federal fugitive from the law, sir. And I think you know that. And he's like, oh, that. Yeah. Mm -hmm." (laughs) What, What did you think? It's not like the Old West where if you like break out, they're like, well, you know what? You earned this one. You get one freebie. Yeah. Go on. Good job, you. So Buddy eventually admitted that he and Audrey had fled New York City in a rented Dodge Aspen and drove to Des Moines, Iowa. Then he purchased another vehicle using fake identification. The Dodge was driven back to LaGuardia as a decoy, which made authorities believe that he had potentially escaped to another country. But Buddy said that he was not fleeing justice, but instead was on a quest for justice. He claimed that he had not... Escaped jail for his own benefit, but that he was hunting down drug traffickers who were the ones actually responsible for the murder of Jack Tupper. And he was going to get evidence that would clear his name and free him from a corrupt judicial system that had railroaded him and set him up. At least he's consistent. He's very consistent. On July fifteenth, nineteen eighty, Buddy was formally sentenced to twenty-five years to life plus seven years for the escape. He was remanded to Danamora or Danny Mora. It's a famous prison. There's a mini series about a famous escape where there was a love triangle involved, and uh, Patricia Arquette is in it. That might be one that we should cover someday. But it's—I think it's Mora or Danny Mora. Yeah, sorry, I'm not up to date on pronunciations of famous prisons. <laughs> How dare you! In any case, he was remanded there where less than a year later, he was penalized for digging a hole in the exercise yard as means to escape. He is a dumbass womanizing cold-blooded murderer, but he does not give up. No. Uh, Buddy's fight for life on the outside ended, however, on May 16th, 1989 in a Buffalo Medical Center where he lost his battle with bone cancer. He was 58 years old and proclaimed his innocence until the bitter end. His sister said that even when he was dying of bone cancer, he did not care about the cancer. He just wanted to clear his name before he died, which did not happen. Son David Jacobson followed in his famous family's footsteps and became a nationally ranked top horse trainer. Great. Yeah, people had only good things to say about him. So he didn't have whatever that cruel streak or uncaring streak was. He was a very talented and kind trainer, from what I read. In 2013, he set the single season record for victories at New York Racing Association tracks. So like Belmont, Saratoga. By the time he retired in 2019, he had attained an astonishing $46 million in career winnings. Wow. Yeah he also maintains that his father was innocent and railroaded by the investigators, prosecution, and potentially even his ex, model Melanie Kane. Now, I could not find much out about Melanie past a few more modeling years. So I'm just imagining that she like ended up having a nice quiet life, marrying a nice person, maybe moving out to Connecticut, opening like a fancy linen store or something. That's what I'm imagining for Melanie Kane. So you guys, you can just imagine whatever you want for Melanie Kane because I don't know. So that's today's episode. What did you think, Andy? That was crazy. And don't you guys worry if you are patrons, we actually have two coming your way for July still. I'm I'm working on quite the number, another one that probably could have been A a full-length, full-love murder now is um, what I'm writing today. And then we're going to have a super extra exciting surprise. My one and only Nathaniel Whittemore, host of The Breakdown with NLW, will be telling me and maybe Andy, if she can make it, a historical murder crime. So get excited. We're very excited about this. And that will also be on the Patreon. So thank you guys. In conclusion, man, I do not think you should take your 22-year-old model girlfriend with you on the run because she is not going to want to hang in a dirty, sweaty car with you 24-7 while you're worried about being caught. Yeah, especially when adventures are promised. I mean, not that type of adventure. Yeah, like sleeping in a Dodge Aspen and eating corn nuts from the gas station is not my idea of a good time. No. And
0: also, like, I love organizing and, like, putting together boxes and furniture and, like, love me and Ikea. But I don't really think it's a good idea to build a six-foot box the night before you might accidentally murder someone because it's a little sus.
1: I concur. Majorly sus. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets accidentally set up for murder by a corrupt judicial system and a network of drug dealers. Love you guys. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs)